good afternoon and welcome to Straight Talking English Season 2, Episode 2, The Macbeth Season. So last time we were talking about the atmosphere of witchcraft and King James I. The other ingredient that we need to make Macbeth is, obviously, William Shakespeare. My name's Catherine, I am a qualified English teacher and probably the best person, I guess, in terms of qualifications, aside from maybe a historian, to tell you about Shakespeare. So it was premiered over Christmas time in 1606. Shakespeare frequently operated to a very specific brief. In this case, he has some really succinct success criteria, for want of a better word. You know, like, like we have in class. It had to be a short play. The king has absolutely no patience at all with plays. In fact, a couple of years previously, when he came to the throne, he'd fallen asleep in the first play someone put on. He had tried to get out on the second play of the day. I mean, the equivalent of being on a date and pretending you've got a phone call. Oh, is that the time? I guess I have to go. And pretty much said, theatre is not my thing. So it's got to be short. He's got to refer to real events. The King is not a big one for fiction. As long as it's got some reference, preferably to him, but also real life, it's good. What we remember about James I is is that he loves to party. So the more extravagant, the more exciting, the more like special effects, outrageous costumes, the better really he's gonna be into that. He's gotta fit a small space. James I had turned what was kind of a temporary porter cabin venue of Elizabeth I, which was a private theatre, into a permanent space. And it is small. This is a time before electricity. So think dim, candlelight. Shakespeare couldn't produce a play for this occasion that required, you know, light and air and excitement because it ain't gonna happen. It also has to include a celebrity superstar. So at this point, in the same way that we do now we might be motivated to go to see a play by a celebrity so i mean not sure if this is okay now but i went to see kevin spacey in a one-man play a couple of years ago about a lawyer it was called um clarence darrow and i mean i wouldn't have gone to see a one-man play about a lawyer really unless i wanted to see an oscar-winning actor doing his thing for the record very very good play no comment on spacey's personal life the absolute superstar at this point is Richard Burbage, B-U-R-B-A-G-E, and he is Shakespeare's great tragedian. He is, what we know of him, he is a physically big man. He has had many, many parts written for him. So if you think about Shakespeare's great tragedies, including Richard III, those parts were written specifically for this guy, Burbage. He's not playing the handsome young hot shot anymore, but he is perfect for Macbeth. He's a bit older, he can do serious. It's gotta be some time you can get Burbage in. For the record, it doesn't matter if it's got Shakespeare's name on it, and some of the playbills did have his name on, some didn't, but the second you see name in lights, Burbage, you are in there. There's another guy as well called Will Kemp, who's the equivalent in terms of comedy. Apparently he could do like this little dance, which was hilarious and he was famous for, but this is not the time for Kemp, this is not the time for fun. This is what Shakespeare is working with. 
it. So why the heck was Shakespeare writing a play for King James I? We'll get to that, but let's start off at the very beginning with Shakespeare. He was born in 1564 in Stratford in Warwickshire, not too far from where I went to university, and his dad was doing alright for himself, doing alright, middle class, glove maker, wool dealer, wool merchant. I just like the idea of someone dealing in sheep. So Shakespeare was alright when he grew up. His dad later was revealed to be terrible with money and got them all into a load of debt, but he's alright, he's alright. Luckily, because he is middle class, he is sent to somewhere called Stratford Grammar and received probably the best education that it's possible to get without being royalty. I don't know whether this is better or worse than school now, like... Depends on your opinion, really. It sounds like my idea of hell. The historian Jonathan Bates says he would have achieved a level of proficiency in Latin above that of many a modern undergrad student of the classics because the entirety of education was Latin. Just Latin, the language of the Romans. This guy had written a book called The Short Introduction of Grammar that was compulsory to be used in any school, any existing school. It was stories, speeches from ancient Rome and ancient Greece. It was translating, it was working out like the rules of Latin and you'd be expected to speak it. The idea was that all the important lessons that we can learn in this world come from the ancient Romans. So he'd be reading things from these classical historians and emperors and all this cool stuff. But he'd also be writing responses in character. Just an aside for a second, people, well I say people, I mean students, say to me, why does he write like that? And the lazy answer is, because it's really old. And it's not, it's not, it's people in Stuart times, their speech may well have been intelligible to us, but the way Shakespeare wrote it down is not how people would have spoken. He's got this rich, rich background in Latin, and some of the devices he uses that students annotate for actors learn are directly from ancient Rome. So if you're an educated man, or maybe girl, in Tudor, Jacobean, Stuart times, you would recognise them. They would be totally familiar to you because Latin is not really an option that people do in school. You can do classics, you can do Latin, but people of my dad's generation may well have had to have done it in school and even then you're just getting the tiniest inkling of what is going on. And I'm not coming from a position of an expert here because I can say the wolf howls in Latin and that's it. Lupus but the point is we can't get it unless we have a functional knowledge of ancient Roman histories and we also speak Latin. So that's why it's so weird to understand. We, other than his school records and his birth and his baptism, we don't see very much else of Shakespeare till he turns 18. So about this time, 1570 through 1630, the average age for a dude to get married was age 24 to 26. It was legal to get married earlier, like age 12 to 14 but that's not marriage in the sense that we know it if you were clearly clearly underage and the age of adulthood at this point is 21 it could just be seen as like 
an engagement contract like okay they're married now cool like you know we're set now they'll do like the actual duties of marriage a bit later in fact most people wouldn't even think about getting married until age 21 so this is partly why when we get on to Romeo and Juliet that it is really young so the average woman at this time was 24 as well but 1582 Shakespeare marries a lady called Anne Hathaway aged 18 she is 26 she is already pregnant oh the classy fellow will <laughs> she might already have been widowed she might have been like a friend of the family and it was arranged might not have been that much of a scandal wedding was considered legally binding once and i quote a solemn spousal promise was made so every time i've said i love you to my partner in public apparently that counts as us getting married which is news to me um i'm still waiting for my cake i feel like there should be some cake at this point so they well could have said like i love you we want to be together and not just not done the churchy bit or he could have been a dirty dog let's face it he could have just been a dirty dog we don't know could have been a money thing could have been supporting a friend whatever aged 18 he is father with an eight years old eight years older wife smarter people than me shakespearean scholars call the next bit the lost years to be fair some of my 20s i think of as the lost years but we've got this gap in which we don't really see much of will again for a while in the meantime a lot of stuff is going on he was probably involved in it in some form or another but we don't know so it's reasonable to make a guess People have started moving, physically moving. Britain as we know it is becoming more urban instead of rural. We need to think again about the body politic that I mentioned last. The king has two bodies, his physical body and the country. Think about in spectacles, we are all members of one body. And if we all do our own jobs, then the body works perfectly. The fingers do their finger stuff, the liver does its liver stuff. It's all great, we've still got our set job we've got the cosmic order the great chain of being is still around god to king to lords to people in the family it goes dad to mum to kids but people are starting to question that this is the bit where we see the world turning from medieval to modern and this is what we call the renaissance which means a rebirth the revival art and culture is flowering the historian highland in his book introduction to shakespeare says that a blind acceptance of authority and dogma with a new spirit of skeptical and empirical inquiry people are looking back at classical culture looking back at ancient greece ancient rome ancient egypt and they're kind of using it to question to think about some of the things that they're told like is this right is this wrong could we look at this a different way people are mostly using this ancient philosophy to like back up with science some of the things that they're saying but fair enough english as a language stops being the black sheep of the family and becomes 
blooming important language. Important enough to compare with French and Italian in terms of being a cultural and a useful language. People like Christopher Marlowe are very important. Marlowe could well have been better than Shakespeare if he'd have lived. He was a playwright and a poet and he got stabbed in the eye and died in a drunken fight. But one of the great things he wrote was called Dr Faustus in which a scientist sells his soul to the devil for knowledge and power and then dramatically at the end he's like I regret it and the devil's like yeah we well, signed a contract and drags him away people are starting to think about these things like the devil is here don't get me wrong this is a time still of intense faith in about 1580 acting starts to be a proper job rather than just random people wandering around by 1592 Shakespeare emerges again we get our evidence back again and we know he's a working playwright in fact we know he's a working playwright because this grumpy old item called Robert Greene who despite being an educated man hated all kinds of fiction writing he hated poetry he hated plays he hated books and in 1592 he wrote a pamphlet against a warning well it was a warning against being a writer and he says there is an upstart crow beautified with our feathers that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide supposes he is well able to bombast out a blank verse of the best of you and being an absolute johannes factotum is in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country all right basically stop being so full of yourself mate you think you're so good but actually you're a jack of all trades master of none you're spreading yourself too thin stupid Shakespeare this is definitely a, me a reference to him so we know he's doing something by 1593 the plagues have closed the theatres we cannot underestimate how horrific the plague is something like a single plague would wipe out a quarter of all Londoners like can you imagine that three months and a quarter of London is gone so they have these emergency quarantine measures where any public place where people might hang out together is closed. The king, the queen would run off to the countryside. In James's case it was the north of England. In Elizabeth's case it was Greenwich! Woo! She would run off by bus to somewhere about 10 minutes down the road from me. So yeah, clearly this is the place to go. But when the, the when the theatres were closed, Shakespeare had to do something else to earn money. So he got himself a sponsor, usually a rich man who's interested in looking like a fancy pants and saying, oh, I'm so good to writers. This guy called the Earl of Southampton. This is where some of these rumours come from online, which is Shakespeare was gay. Yeah, we don't know. So his poems for the Earl of Southampton, some of them are a little bit sexy, a little bit about, oh, you're a man, you're very handsome. Well, male friendships are very different to the friendships that men have today or in fact that anyone has today where people would say I love you you're beautiful to their same-sex best friend and it wouldn't necessarily be anything like romantic in it alternatively he might have been writing in character or he might have been writing according to like a very specific structure so while the theatres were closed to summarize he wrote sexy poems about dudes for a dude after last season where I kept mentioning sex work because 
I was hoping this season I wouldn't have to do anything controversial, but no, it's all about sexy men. By 1594, the theatres were open again, and he joined a theatre company, a group of actors and writers called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. That just means they were sponsored by this guy, the Lord Chamberlain, and he stayed with this group until 1612 when he retired. So he's pretty set, pretty set. By 1597, the Globe is built, and it became his main source of income because he was a shareholder in it. It's one thing getting the money from writing the plays, but you could get the money from the ticket sales, from the stack sales, from skimming off the top of the actors. And by the end of his life, he's pretty wealthy. Theatre is coming about as a genre in its own right. Medieval times, there was this thing called mystery plays, where when people couldn't read and write, you could watch a play about a Bible story. So let's say at Christmas, you'd have something a bit like a nativity play, probably far more gory. And a bit later, you had these things called morality plays, where a group would come round and have a character representing like a stereotype or an archetype, like I am old age. I am a farmer. But when England became a Protestant country and the emphasis when sort of faith is a simple relationship between you and your God, things like this were seen as far too flashy and a little bit too, dare we say it, Catholic. Whoa! For everyone's liking. So theatre as a genre of fiction without like an ulterior motive came into its own. Generally pre-1600 in Shakespeare's life, we have the lighter plays, the funny plays. The only one that's written that might be at least a little bit sad is Romeo and Juliet. After 1600, there are some comedies, but ones like Twelfth Night, where like it's really funny because we're mocking someone who feels good about themselves. And you get a lot of tragedies, Hamlet, Othello, Lear are coming out the same time as Macbeth. It might be a personal tragedy happened in his life, like we don't know, but could just, I'm feeling it's just like a change in artistic direction. After the age of 40, you were considered elderly, so Shaky is starting to feel the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's actually quite difficult when he was writing Macbeth to walk this political line. So on one hand, you want to have an interesting play that asks questions, but you don't want to push it too far because the charge of sedition, aka being cheeky about the people in power, could lead you to be imprisoned. And in fact, Shakespeare was the only dramatist at this time who never got arrested for it so well done mate some people argue like oh he's just an apologist like oh i'll do anything for money but he couldn't keep his career if he was being censored if you wanted it performed at court he had to have it pass inspection this guy was called the master of revels so if you wanted to submit your play to court you wanted to perform it for the king you submit it to the master of revels he can cut bits change bits reject bits we know it can't have anything religious can't have anything critical of the king you can't have anything offensive to foreign allies but you've got to make it interesting it can't just be like blah 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 propaganda it's a difficult line it's a tough line that shakespeare has to walk 
book. If you've got a history play though, you could have questions on current affairs. So the play Richard II involves a king who abdicates. So maybe that could be saying, oh, should our king abdicate? And it's a way of getting people thinking by setting it in the plot, in the past. Whereas the tragedies probably have more of a comment on politics rather than the king. Most of Shakespeare's stories weren't original ideas, by the way. We are saying like, oh yeah, Shakespeare wrote this, Shakespeare wrote this. Well, yeah, he kind of did, but did he? So a couple of years earlier, 1603, when he's like chilling in Stratford, he got told about an incident that had happened in Oxford with King James. A guy called Matthew Gwynne had put on a little play for the king as he came into town. Tell me if this sounds like anything that we might know. This is from 1606 by James Shapiro. As he rode into town in the afternoon of the 27th of August, accompanied by Queen Anne, Prince Henry and a retinue of noblemen, the king was greeted outside the gate of St John's College by three young men, dressed as one bystander recorded, in habits and attire like nymphs. Actually, the three were playing the parts of prophetic sibyls, and they greeted the king and his entourage, first in Latin, then, for the sake of the queen, in English, though only the Latin version survives. The Sibyls then recounted the story of how, long ago, they told Banquo that he would father a long line of Scottish kings that would possess empire without end. Now, in a similar matter, they prophesied the same future for Banquo's descendant, King James. At this point, the first Sibyl cries, Salve! Sway Scotia Servit! Which means, hail, whom Scotland serves, and is probably better translated as Hail King of Scotland. The next Sibyl in turn greeted James with the words Hail King of England, followed by the third Hail King of Ireland. This was followed by an additional pro-union, all hail for James, who divided Britain joins into one. The king, an onlooker noted, did very much applaud this conceit. Oh my days! It is the first witches scene almost in its entirety. Shakespeare heard about this, of course he did, he's well connected. I think he nicked it from this fella, Matthew Gwynne. But Matthew Gwynne nicked it from a guy called Hollinshed. He wrote a book called The Chronicles and he said, again quoting from Shapiro, the weird sisters, that is as ye would say, the goddesses of destiny, or else some nymphs or fairies endowed with knowledge of prophecy appear to Banquo and his friend and say first, all hail Macbeth, Dane of Glams, all hail Macbeth, Dane of Cordor, and all hail Macbeth that hereafter shall be king of Scotland. Only then do they turn to Banquo and say, We promise greater benefits unto thee than unto him, for he shall reign indeed, but with unlucky end. Neither, how, neither shall he leave any issue behind him to succeed in his place, where con contrarily thou indeed shall not reign at all, but of thee those shall be born, which shall govern the Scottish kingdom by long order of continual descent. What? So Shakespeare nicked it off this guy Green, nicked it off this guy Hollinshed. So, I mean, was Macbeth even a real dude? Answer, yes he was. His full name was Macbethad Macdindliach. He was a pre-Norman king in Scotland, so 
just before the Norman Conquest in 1066. Duncan and Malcolm were his foster brothers. Macbeth and Duncan had an equal claim to the throne. He killed Lady Macbeth's dad and married her. Her name was Gruach. He did kill Duncan in battle. There's no Banquo at all. He had 17 years of a solid reign. Malcolm did defeat him, but then he was still king for another three years. So some of the names are the same and some of the basic like he kills people are <clears throat> uh, that's it this story got retold and then retold and then retold and that was what Shakespeare was reading and thinking about when he wrote it I mean reasonably the other thing that he was thinking about and honestly this is kind of difficult to explain because you guys are kind of younger than me gunpowder plot right like remember remember the 5th of November gunpowder treason plot basically group of Catholics raging at King James the first decided to put gunpowder under parliament so when he gave in or he came in to give a speech he'd get blown up all right there was an anonymous tip off that someone gave to one of their friends saying don't go into parliament tomorrow something bad's gonna happen which was immediately brought before king james he ordered the sellers under parliament to be inspected found the gunpowder and allegedly called guy fawkes he of v for vendetta and those stupid anonymous masks fame all right fair enough and we learn about this at school we know this the bit afterwards we don't know what happens the next day and the reason i mentioned you guys being younger than me is because i can't really describe what it was like the day after the 7-7 bombings so i was at home on my study leave from a level so i was watching daytime tv and then every channel changes to the news something's happened something's happened all transport stops instantly my dad was working on victoria street at that point and my sister was on a school trip because she was in year 10 and it was just this moment of we don't know i can't find out everything is shut london is gone there was a we knew there was a bomb and then later that or later on when uh, jean charles de menezes was killed it started this panic again of we don't no we just don't know the next day there's this barely controlled anarchy after the gunpowder plot is foiled there's vigilantes armed on the streets bearing in mind that every guy at this point has at least a knife and a sword on him and it's directed at foreigners because the pope must be involved obviously this could not have come from within the country it did all the culprits were brits it must be part of an international conspiracy conspiracy right <laughs> right it oh it just honestly scared me when i read this because it resonated with me so much there were reports at the time this guy called edward howells said the common people muttered and imagined many many things and the nobles knew not what to say nor whom to clear and suspect and for certain days a general jealousy possessed them all anyone who even made a joke would find themselves in prison it was as a guy called molino said as yet it is very difficult to arrive at the truth the government had to make an 
official response. Within a couple of days, all the documents, all the stuff that we, I remember looking at in primary school, the pictures, copies of the notes are released and they make an official statement, an official narrative out of this in a surprisingly modern move saying Catholics hate the king. All right, fair enough. A little bit later on, people try and make sense of this. Remember great chain of being? We can't, how could the king be killed in this way? It must be demons. It must be, these people must be possessed. It must be the devil. And this seems to be the only realistic explanation that's presented in the months afterwards. Problem being, this isn't even the end of James's problem. As I mentioned last episode, he's had assassination attempts his whole life. And the play was staged a month after another reported assassination attempt. The first reports came out and they said it was a transvestite. It was a Scottish guy wearing a dress who caused all these problems. Maybe a guy with a beard dressed as a witch. Dung, dung, dung. Yeah, that imagery about the witch's beards is 100% linked to that. But the official story came out again. Good good job, James. Nice PR. This nobleman, Alexander Ruthven, had tried to kidnap James. Okay, with me so far. Then James, remember, rickets, problems walking, heroically killed him. I, I don't really think he could you know kill a bowl of ice cream but anyway so he couldn't be questioned he's been killed but when james searched his pocket there were magic spells in it therefore demons are involved the devil is trying to assassinate the king it comes with it this atmosphere of fear everyone is afraid catholics are persecuted there is a huge fine if you don't show up to church regular anglican church it was even if like you didn't feel like going to church that day or you were sick or you know whatever you still face that fine it was like an us or them and it's interesting because Shakespeare's daughter was one of the people that was fined we don't know we've just got this criminal record saying that she didn't show up and she got a fine he's feeling this himself his daughter Susanna is like she's on the them group James forced everyone to take this thing called the Oath of Allegiance and again if you didn't there better be a blooming good reason why because you are swearing allegiance to the king. So back to the question I asked at the start what led Shakespeare to write this? 1603 he got a new job. He's the principal writer of something called the King's Men. He was officially now nobility. His title was Groom of the Chamber. It's very minor. It's not like Lord or anything, but it's one step off the bottom. He gets to wear the king's livery, so the finest clothes, with the king's logo on it in a beautiful special red. He is both allowed and required to perform at court. As I mentioned before, with sponsors, the king has appointed him official writer for this company, this group of actors. He is the king's official playwright. He does not want to be imprisoned. He wants the king to be happy. He is getting fat stacks of cash to the point when, by 1612, he's retired in the biggest house in Stratford at that point. He's writing it because it's his job. And that is your answer. I started with our brief, I started with our background, but ultimately it was his job. He was told to write this by the man signing his paychecks. Bunk, bunk, bunk.
and we're going to drop that bombshell and leave it on that note. Next episode, I'm going to be talking to you about the plot and themes and imagery in the play itself. After that, we are looking at masculinity. We are looking at femininity. We are looking at audience reactions. And then i that's actually as far as my scripts have gone. Gonna plug my pluggables. Forgot to do this last time. STR8 Talking English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. Thank you very, very much. Enjoy Macbeth. Write a play. Don't steal anyone else's work. Be kind to your king and make fat stacks of cash to buy a house in Stratford. <laughs>